0: This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 46. This, as always, is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will tell you why college football has always meant so much to me and why it has always driven me so crazy. I will tell you how, once upon a time, I won an all-expenses trip to the Bahamas by picking college football, and it was sheer luck. I will address my Cowboys. I will address Brady before answering a hot batch of your questions. I will review Violent Night in honor of Christmas, and I will finish with the treadmill accident I suffered while trying to text my brother Lil Wayne a Merry Packer Christmas. Bad idea. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Look, I was a college football fanatic long before I pretty much dedicated my entire life to pro football. As you probably know, I grew up on Oklahoma Sooners football in the Big Eight, which became the Big 12. Then I went away to Vanderbilt, and I could not help being steeped in black and gold tradition in the Southeastern Conference. But now, on the eve of this year's playoff games, this Saturday, I look back on the many, many years of my college football fandom And I can't believe what I put up with. Man, I I have always had to love college football through gritted teeth while turning off my better judgment, my right or wrong radar. Because everything in college football from the start for me always screamed wrong, wrong, wrong. So I had to love it blindly because to this day, forgive me, but I I believe the Oklahoma-Texas game, and I went to many of them, at the State Fair of Texas in Dallas, played in a Cotton Bowl before almost 100,000 fans evenly split right down the middle between Oklahoma Red and Texas Orange is still the greatest spectacle in all of sports. If you haven't experienced this spectacle, you better at some point on your bucket list, and if you have, you know what I'm talking about. And I also believe that the 1971 Oklahoma-Nebraska game in Norman, which I attended, is still the greatest game I ever attended or covered or sat firsthand and watched. I wrote about it for foxsports.com a year ago. So when it comes to tradition and pageantry, nation-gripping games, in quaint rural locales, the NFL can't compete with college football. And trust me, I've been to all of these small-town Valhalla's from College Station to Waco to Lubbock, to Tuscaloosa, to Starkville, to Oxford, to Knoxville, to Lincoln, to Columbus, to Ann Arbor, West Lafayette, from Clemson, to Eugene, to Tallahassee, to Pullman. I've been to Pullman. I have covered games in all these places. I know them all. I know all the historical hot spots in college football. So I get college football and I don't get it. Here we go again. Ladies and gentlemen, it is lunacy that four playoff teams that we will watch Saturday have had to wait an entire month to play the biggest games of the college football season. Yet everybody annually just shrugs and figures, oh well, that's just the way it is and always has been. What? Can you imagine the outcry if the National Football League suddenly announced we have to wait a month between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl? Can you imagine? the gnashing of teeth. I used to be told that back in my newspaper days, well, these quote-unquote student-athletes need time to focus on finals. Baloney. I knew that explanation probably played well in the heartland of America, in the hinterlands of America. Studies come first for these fine young men. But you know and I know, this is a billion-dollar business. And obviously, it's powers that be one of it, its biggest games in and around the New Year's holidays. But w- wait a second, a whole month off? In some years, it's been more. It's been five weeks between regular season's end and big games, bowl games, playoff games. What? What a great way to cheapen your product. Momentum, be damned. Peak execution, be gone. Late season fitness, take a holiday. It's almost like our four playoff teams are are starting a whole new season. Like, this year now feels like it was actually last year. Who knows what to expect early in these playoff games? Because trust me, the coaches don't know what to expect. The rust factor has to be worse than what happens to snowbelt cars. Four weeks off? It's madness. I'm not talking about March madness. I'm talking about December, January madness. But who's complaining? Nobody's complaining. We will all watch. College football has us by the eyeballs. Heck, just for the record, back in the day, once upon a time, I actually campaigned for college football to have just one preseason game just to enhance the product Give these teams, give these kids one shot to at least scrimmage against another team before they play a game, and sometimes a very big game, that does count. My dear friend Gary Gibbs, known him forever. He became the head coach at the University of Oklahoma after years of being the defensive coordinator under Barry Switzer. He was a huge proponent of one, just one preseason game. And I believed in Gary and believed him and quoted him on this. Just let, do an intersectional rivalry. Let Oklahoma scrimmage Texas A&M. Think of the money you could make. Nope, nope, said the powers that be. We don't in any way, shape, or form want to resemble pro football. But hey, at least we have a 14 playoff. Do you know how many years of my life I had to put up with waiting for polls, for polls to choose a national championship for me, a national champion for me. I'm talking about polls like AP poll, UPI poll back in the day, USA Today poll, foul polls everywhere. More polls than a strip club I had to put up with. It was insanity. But what did college football coaches used to tell me? The reason they all fought for so long against any sort of playoff system was they all wanted that opportunity to actually go to a bowl game, preferably in a tropical climb, take all their fans on a holiday trip, and have the potential to actually win the last game of the season to give everybody hope through the offseason that next year could be a little better than this year. And maybe even in the end, if you win your final game, then you could make a case to pollsters that, hey, you belong in the national championship conversation decided by polls. What? It was absolute madness. But now, at least, college football players are finally actually being paid. That's been my lifelong campaign. They deserve their piece of the pie. I I can't tell you how many columns I wrote about this. Though, of course, now the NCAA does cloak it, cloak the compensation in NIL deals. It's just money, that's all it is. Boomer, it's, it's it's just boosters paying big bucks to college football stars to come win games and bragging rights for said boosters. That's all it is. But it's cloaked in NIL deals because obviously powers that be still fear that the old school college football diehard fans don't wanna get their noses rubbed in the fact that their quarterback is now making millions of dollars as college football stars should have many, many years ago. How many kids tore up their knees for dear old you? How many kids pro careers got shortened because they died for the cause, so to speak, at dear old you? Biggest story of 2022 to me was the freeing of college football players, the paying of college football players, getting market value, and finally having the ability, like coaches always have, to move, to change teams if they don't like where they are, to take a better deal elsewhere by exiting stage right, right through the portal. But you know and I know that the powers that be have always tried to cling to, have tried to sell this quote-unquote student-athlete illusion to boosters and old school diehard fans, an illusion that would be shattered if players actually were paid to play for Dear Old You because boosters and alums want to imagine that these kids playing for their school actually sit in the same classrooms they did once upon a time at Dear Old You. At least these hip hip hypocrisy days are gone. What days I went through fighting for this. What days I went through covering the pay for play scandal through the 1980s that brought the death penalty, the NCAA death penalty to Southern Methodist University, SMU in Dallas, where I was the columnist for many years. I was very close with, I will admit it, the head coach at SMU during those days, late 70s, early 80s, Ron Meyer. I liked him. I rooted for him. But as you well know, Ron Meyer finally decided to take advantage of his wealthy Zealot boosters, who would spare no expense when it came to beating any of their Southwest Conference rivals, Texas, Texas A&M. Because remember, those downtown Dallas office towers were filled with graduates of all the Southwest Conference schools, a melting pot of graduates of all those schools. So come Monday, bragging rights were gold. Elevator rights, lunch club rights, bragging rights were gold. So Ron Meyer decided to buy the best team that money could buy And as you probably know, this became one of the all-time greatest 30 for 30 documentaries called Pony Excess. My sound bites liberally used throughout Pony Excess. On National Signing Day 1979, Ron Meyer called me from his car as he left Sealy, Texas, and all but yelled into his car phone, we just landed Eric Dickerson. And I said, wait wait a second, Ron, you, you already signed Craig James. If you don't remember Craig James out of Houston Stratford high school was at that point the second best running back in the nation, Eric Dickerson, my friend Eric, now the ram ambassador, ex-LA Ram. Eric Dickerson was by far the best running back in the nation. So, wait a second, little SMU, Smoo, as they called it, had just signed the first and second best running back in the nation. And if you don't remember how good Craig James was, he went on from SMU to play for Ron Meyer in New England, And their Super Bowl year, 1985, Craig James made the Pro Bowl, made the Pro Bowl. That's how good he was. That New England team obviously got to the Super Bowl and unfortunately ran headlong into the 1985 Chicago Bears. And that was the end of that. But the point was, I had been led to believe that Craig James had signed with SMU because his girlfriend, who was a year older, was already attending SMU. And that was part of the reason, but probably not all of the reason. So why did suddenly Eric Dickerson shun mighty Texas A&M for that little private school up in Dallas, SMU? Uh, I think you know why. Today, my friend Eric Dickerson would command, I don't know, a $5 million NIL deal, and it would all be legal. But as I concluded in the columns that I wrote in Dallas in those days, Ron Meyer was breaking bad rules, but rules nonetheless. By the way, I often wondered during those days If the NCAA was getting billions of dollars in TV contracts and they continued to cry poor, where did all that money go? I, I don't know, to this day, I sit here and I think a much bigger scandal, an even better 30 for 30 would be, where did all that money go with all those powers that be crying so poor? I, I have no idea. I, I, I don't Billions of dollars, where did it go? I don't know." So the NCAA, obviously, their investigators found SMU guilty of running a slush fund to pay for players. The same kind of slush fund my Oklahoma Sooners ran all through the days of Bud Wilkinson, the post-World War II days, when my Sooners won 47 straight games a record that will never, ever be touched or broken. Today, slush funds, quote-unquote, are just fine. They're perfectly legal, thank God, and Newt Rockne. And by the way, Ron Meyer, back in those days, he hit the trail one step ahead of the NCAA law by becoming the head coach of the New England Patriots in 1982 in pro football, where Ron probably belonged. And now, as I mentioned, student athletes, quote unquote, can finally do exactly what those coaches have done. They can hit the transfer portal, as basically Ron Meyer did, and leave for a better deal. Thank God and Bear Bryant, may he rest in peace. In the first few years after I graduated from Vanderbilt University, I wrote a couple of times that I didn't really care whether My school, Vanderbilt, had Division I sports in football, basketball, baseball, because to me, and I still believe this with all my heart and soul, Vandy is the greatest university in this land. Certainly changed my life and made my life. But my point was, hey, it's the only private school in the SEC, so, so why do we need athletes who would never ever choose to go to Vanderbilt in the first place, sign with us as almost mercenary football, basketball, or baseball players, and represent our school on athletic teams? We don't need that. We can stand on our own two feet. We're an academic school. We're, we're the greatest of all college experiences, but obviously Athletics are a vital part of that college experience. Some of my fellow alums took issue with me because they live and die for Vanderbilt sports. And as I grew up, as I grew away from my college days in Nashville at Vandy, I found myself rooting like crazy for Vanderbilt sports, for the teams, and for the ex-players playing professionally in football and basketball and especially baseball. And I started thinking, hey, they're, they're sitting in the same classrooms that I sat in at Furman Hall and Old Science. They're right there in those same chairs. Maybe not, but I like the illusion of it. I like the thought of it and talk about degree of difficulty, man, it's hard to get in Vanderbilt, even for an athlete, even if we make some exceptions, and it's even harder to stay eligible at Vanderbilt. So our degree of difficulty is through the roof of Furman Hall. We have to compete against Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee, our arch rival in Knoxville. And yet, I've lost count of how many national championships we've won in baseball. It seems like it's every other year. In my days of rooting for Jay Cutler, as many issues as he ultimately had on and off the football field, my days on cold pizza in 2004, 2005, saying again and again on the air, we got a quarterback at Vanderbilt and getting laughed at on live TV, getting scoffed at. And then watching Jay Cutler lead the Chicago Bears all the way to a home NFC championship game. I know it didn't turn out well, but he did that in pro football. Jay Cutler made me look like a genius being true to my school because of all geniuses, Mike Shanahan traded up in that draft to snatch Jay Cutler with the 11th overall pick. One behind Matt Leinert, the Heisman Trophy winner. I bragged about Jay Cutler because I had bragging rights. And I brag about Casey Hayward and Zach Cunningham and Keyshawn Vaughn. I could go on and on talking about players in pro football right now out of my school. I could go on and on about Darius Garland in the NBA out of Vanderbilt University. Man, I I could go on and on because I get worked up and caught up in the emotion of being true to my school. It's just part of the college football, basketball, and baseball experience. So, yes, I cannot wait to watch Michigan play TCU and Georgia to play Ohio State. I'm picking Georgia to win it all. It's not out on the limb. It's chalk but I do root for Stetson Bennett IV because he's the greatest college football story you could ever imagine. He is college football. He walked on at Georgia. He had to leave to go to junior college because he couldn't make it, and he returned to Georgia and finally broke through and started for two years. He's 25 years old is Stetson Bennett IV. He's five feet, 11 inches tall, and heavens to Rockne, i I made the case on Undisputed. I thought he deserved the Heisman. He was sensational this year. It's hard to play quarterback. It's hard to play quarterback for a team that's expected to win every game. And he got them home again and again and again with big play after play after play. That's college football. In the end, on Saturday, I will forget that these teams had to wait a whole month to play each other. That's just college football. Bula, bula. Bula, mula. Two quick asides before I continue. Number one. I'm going to double down, triple down, quadruple down, whatever down, deca down. Over the fact that I've been telling you again and again and again, probably to your distraction, these Dallas Cowboys will make the NFC championship game. Book it. Done. They're just a little better than the Eagles. And if necessary, they will beat the Eagles in Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts at quarterback, if necessary. Because this team is loaded with firepower and star power. This team, as it proved last Saturday, is flat-out legit. And number two, as god-awful... As Tom Brady and the Bucs have looked, Shannon and I have done battle again and again and again and again over this. And as much as I considered their quote unquote win in overtime at Arizona against Trace McSorley, what I called a moral loss, not a moral victory, a moral loss, as bad as the Bucks are, on defense, rated it only 18th best in the league by Pro Football Focus. Pass Rush ranked 28th best. And even though the Bucks are dead last in running the football, and even though their receiving core is graded only the 22nd best in the entire league, and as much of a battered shambles as their offensive line, has been and might still be and will be, I got to tell you, I still remain scared to death of Brady in a playoff game in Tampa, which is where my Cowboys will wind up if, big if, Brady and company can figure out a way to beat Carolina in Tampa this Sunday, which will not be easy. They're favored by three. I don't even know how. They open as a a five-and-a-half-point favorite. They got bet down quickly to three. I do get that. I'll be honest. I'll be surprised if they do beat Carolina. But I'm telling you, one more time, there's still one man in sports I do not bet against, especially late in close games, especially, especially, especially in playoff games. Right now, As a Cowboy fan, I fear Tom Brady more than I do the Philadelphia Eagles or the San Francisco 49ers. That is a fact. Now, one quick clarification on Brady because it's come up, up, and up again. I do not support Tom Brady on Undisputed because I like him off the air. I do not know Tom Brady. I've never communicated with Tom Brady. Never spoken to him by phone, never texted with him, never done nothing of the like. I do have what I believe to be a game-worn Tom Brady jersey, but that's only because the Bucs actually sent it to me because they said I was the only member of the national media who supported Brady in the box through the pandemic year, his first year in Tampa Bay, playing for what used to be the second year, seven and nine the previous year, on the way to winning the Super Bowl. I do have that jersey. And yet, I, I really don't know much at all about Tom Brady In his private life, I try to follow it from a distance, but I I don't know or care about Tom Brady's politics because I am not political. If you know me, I'm just not. I guess some people, maybe a whole lot of people, thought Brady was a Trump supporter because he had that MAGA hat in his locker ahead of the 2016 election. But I remind you, New England's owner, Robert Kraft, is said to be Donald Trump's closest friend in the world. And then Giselle was quoted in that 2016 range as saying neither she nor her her husband voted for Donald Trump. So I I don't know, and I don't care. I'm religious, but I have no idea if Brady is or not. He's never spoken of it, and I, I don't care whether he is or not. I do know Tom Brady took a shot at me in one of his documentaries for not being on his side or buying into him early on. That was in my early days on cold pizza back on ESPN 2 Because, hey, I was a Montana guy. I didn't see Brady coming, not in those first couple of years as a six round draft pick. But I sure came to believe in him because he won his first six Super Bowls with game winning drives in the fourth quarter or overtime. He did throw a late touchdown pass to Randy Moss that should have won the first Eli Super Bowl. He did throw for a playoff record, not a Super Bowl, but a playoff record, 505 yards, and put up 33 points in that 41-33 Super Bowl loss to Nick Foles. Tom Brady's simply the clutchest player and the greatest leader in NFL history. That's all I know about him and all I care. But I guess the deepest reason I defend Brady is that, if you know me, I'm most intrigued by rare, by humans and by players, football players, who shatter the mold, who prevail their way. I love Jalen Hurts. I don't like the Eagles, but I love Jalen Hurts because so many people didn't. Jalen Hurts is a rare leader, a rare playmaker, who has turned himself into a Pro Bowl thrower of the football. Jalen Hurts is a rare human with rare football character and backbone. That's why I love him. That's why I'm attracted to loving him. You know what Tom Brady was. He was a sixth-round draft pick who ran the ugliest 40-yard dash in the history of the combine, and yet Tom Brady is Michael Jordan in sheep's clothing. That's why I'm attracted to defending and supporting him. So many Brady haters out there still don't get what a cold-blooded football killer Tom Brady is, especially late in close games. He's done it this year at age 45. Go look at what he did to New Orleans, twice. Their arch rival, his nemesis within the division. Look at what he did late in those games. Go look at when the Rams were still the Rams. Go look at what he did late in that game. Go look at what he did to the Packers late in that game. Go look at the two late drives against the Saints. Endless drives with no room for error, and he doesn't make errors in those drives. I mean, heck, as much as I hated what happened on Sunday night at Arizona, once he got the ball in overtime, Brady went six for six. Game over. It's just what he does, who he is. Does he ever make that one spectacular walk-off? Nope, he doesn't. He has no spectacular about him. And most... People see him and dismiss him because he is so corny and so cliched and so all shucks and so gee whiz off the football field. They just can't compute what he is when he turns into Psycho Tom on the field. That's why I defend Brady against the Brady haters. Not because I have an ounce of love for Tom Brady off the field. I don't.
1: Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Time for a flashback in honor of the college football playoffs. A quick story about how I won an all-expenses-paid trip to the Bahamas by sheer luck. This happened in August of 1979. It was my first year as a Young Gun columnist. The Dallas Morning News lead columnist, came right from the LA Times, and they handed me the keys to their kingdom. In those days, Playboy magazine was huge on college football. It was closely aligned to college football, did a huge preseason spread on preseason All Americans, and also conducted a national media contest in which media members were asked to predict the exact order of the final AP poll in college football, with the prize being all expenses paid trip to the Bahamas. So, as always, I was in a huge hurry one day in my little office at the Dallas Morning News. This was pre-internet. This is back in the days when you actually had to hand right in on your ballot, and actually put in an envelope and mail it back to Playboy So I was distracted and I thought, I got to do this. It's almost deadline. And I glanced at the AP preseason poll and I started scribbling down teams in whatever order provoked me at the moment. This was in ink on a paper ballot. And yet when I got to number 20, I glanced back at the AP preseason poll and it hit me I forgot Penn State. It's in ink. How could I forget Penn State, which was ranked number five in the preseason poll? Joe Paterno, Matt Millen, Todd Blackledge at quarterback. Well, I thought, screw it. I blew it. So in ink, I scribbled Penn State in at number 20 and I stuffed my ballot into that envelope and I tossed it into the outgoing mail box and I forgot about it, much to my shock. I got a call in January from a representative in the media department at Playboy magazine informing me. I had won an all-expenses-paid trip to the Bahamas. What? That's when the Playboy rep informed me and congratulated me on winning because I had the foresight to pick Penn State to finish 20th. Penn State had finished 20th. Penn State had a had an inexplicably sorry season at eight and four, and fell all the way from fifth in the preseason poll to 20th in the final poll. I had won by complete accident because I had forgotten Penn State. Of course, you know me, I was too proud to admit that to the Playboy rep, so I humbly accepted her congratulations And two weeks later, my girlfriend at the time, Nancy and I were on the beach in Nassau. Do I ever know my college football? A question from you, from Nils from Texas. Have you ever lost your voice before having to do Undisputed? Good question. Crazy story. It did happen once, Nils. My first year in New York on cold pizza. Which, as you might know, ultimately moved from New York to Bristol, Connecticut, became first take. But once upon a time, one wintry day, I got sick. And I guess it's the first, and I hope, I'm knocking on wood here, last time in my life, I lost my voice night before show, maybe a Wednesday show. But I, I felt fine. I told my producers, I, I still want to do the show. My debate partner at the time, you might remember, was Woody Page, who was known for doing some occasional schtick and skit, such as Professor Screwloose. The name that I actually gave to that character that Woody played as the nutty professor. So we did some crazy you-know-what and we decided on the fly that early morning, let's make me some signs that I can use in the debate. A yes sign, a no sign, a that's crazy sign, a you're wrong sign, I don't know we had six or eight signs. and. <laughs> Believe it or not, it actually worked fairly effectively on air with lots of help from our great moderator, Jay Crawford, who translated and sort of interpreted my facial expressions as well as my card. So you know on TV, facial expressions are worth a thousand words, which is why I have never minded it when we go to what we call two box with Shannon and I sort of facing our cameras as we talk to each other and you see our faces side-by-side looking at you. So you and the audience are then able to watch our instant facial reactions to what the other is saying in the same moment. These two box shots can happen when Shannon's traveling and maybe has to do the show from a remote studio Obviously, it happened during the pandemic when we were stuck at home for a while. So, the punchline to my cold pizza laryngitis story was that the following week, John Walsh, who for many years ran ESPN, came to New York, excuse me, came to New York to cold pizza to critique one of our shows, just as normal, everyday, routine business. Just We were a new show. He just wanted to give us his two cents. And wouldn't you know it, I, I don't know if he selected or somebody on our staff selected, but but the show he pops in to watch is my laryngitis show. I, I had no voice. I said, John, I, I couldn't even speak that day. He shrugged, he critiqued. He actually liked the show. I I, I don't know. Maybe it'd be better if I didn't talk. (laughs) Maybe it'd be better if I just communicated with yes, no signs. Shannon would probably prefer it that way. Another question from Mike from Minnesota. What happens when there is breaking news during Undisputed? Mike, that actually happens pretty often. Happened this past Tuesday when J.J. Watt posted that this will be his last year of playing professional football. So, in the break, I got a call from my producer, Tyler Korn. He's up in the control room on the fifth floor of this building I sit in right now. I'm on the fifth floor, but our studio is actually down on the second floor. We communicate during breaks by phone often, and we quickly kicked around whether this breaking news about J.J. Watt did belong in the show, and I quickly said, absolutely, it does. Then we had to decide on the fly which topic would it replace, and how soon would we be able to initiate it and put it in the show. I believe we had three topics left. So we decided to eliminate our final full topic. It's, it's our number nine topic, which is ahead of our final little topic, which is our little goodbye topic. And this number nine topic was about yet another miraculous Clippers comeback. So we kicked that down and shortened it up to just be a quick number 10. Then we decided that we would wedge in J.J. Watt right after the topic we were about to do, which was the Derwin James topic. Obviously, the hit that he delivered, the ejection that he suffered, right call, wrong talk, excuse me, wrong call. And yet, I, I cannot emphasize to you, Mike, and to anybody else listening, watching the speed and the accuracy with which our crew can turn around a breaking news topic. A new script must be written for Jim Hale, new graphics, new video must be prepared on the fly, up against the clock. I suggested the question we ask would just be simply, how will you remember J.J. Watt's career? And then in the following break, I had to cram like I was back at Vanderbilt for midterms or finals on J.J. Watt's accolades, his injuries, his lack of playoff success, just cram, cram, cram in three and a half, four minutes in the break. Shannon has always went first, and he was outstanding on this topic on the fly with his Hall of Fame perspective. Then I detailed J.J.'s injuries, some perhaps caused by too many those dangerous YouTube stunts that he pulled off. We went, I don't know, eight or nine minutes on J.J. Watts, announced retirement. I hope it worked. For sure, I was very glad we tried it and very proud that at least we thought we had pulled it off on the fly. quick left turn, quick review, quick two cents worth on the movie Violent Night, a Christmas movie. It was a rough weekend for Ernestine, my wife, and for me. Didn't have much time because Christmas Eve was on a big NFL Saturday, Christmas Day, NBA and NFL Sunday. I've told you what my favorite Christmas movies are, but we just had time for one. Ernestine was intrigued by Violent Night. We didn't have time to go to the theater, but we did have time to watch it on our couch in our living room, and it was streaming. So very late Saturday night, after I'd finally come down from the cowboy victory, we tried violent night. Ernestine did not love it. There were moments she wanted to turn it off. It could get silly, it could get dumb, and it could really, really, really get violent. But the more I've thought about it, I must admit, the more I like and liked it. I like audacious. I like clever and creative, risk-taking, and was this ever. As I told you, three of my favorite Christmas movies that we always watch but weren't able to this Christmas, so we didn't have time, Die Hard, which is a Christmas movie, Home Alone, Christmas Vacation, what astounded me as violent night unfolded is this is an homage to In Order, Die Hard, Home Alone, and Christmas Vacation. In Order, all three, with Santa Claus as John McClane and John Leguizamo as Hans Gruber. Yep, yeah, that's what it is. Violent night is incredibly violent, and I'm not talking cartoonish violent. It's real, live, blood-spurting violent. As Santa winds up taking a sledgehammer to the skulls of a whole bunch of bad guys, David Harbour... Stranger Things. I I don't know it, but I know that's how he launched. But David Harbour is weirdly, utterly convincing as a burned-out alcoholic Santa. Is he magic or not magic? It's hard to tell. Is his magic leaving him or not? He can still shoot up and down chimneys magically, but in real life, in doing battle, He has no magic at all. He is terribly mortal. He can and does get hurt. But the key for me to this movie was that David Leach obviously had a hand in it. David Leach is just a producer on this movie, but I know David Leach from directing three of my all-time favorites, John Wick, the first one, Atomic Blonde, Bullet Train. David Leach. Once Brad Pitt's stuntman, life imitated art as Brad Pitt played the stuntman for Leo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Anyway, I digress. I'm fascinated by David Leach. His fingerprints are all over Violent Night. And of course, As you well know from all the vacations, Christmas vacation, Beverly D'Angelo obviously plays Chevy Chase's wife in all of the above. And weirdly, she's here in this playing sort of a female Grinch who tries and fails to steal Christmas. In the end, it weirdly, utterly worked for me. In the end, Violent night has a Christmas heart. Santa prevails. Santa and his magic reindeer are off to their appointed chores in the end. Did my heart good. I can't help myself. I give Violent night a B plus. Forgive me, Ernestine back to your questions. Back to Robert from New York. What happens when you have to go to the bathroom during Undisputed? Now, there's a question I've never been asked. The truth is, Robert, not once in my 19 years of doing daily live TV shows, have I ever gone to the bathroom during a show. Not that I haven't needed to go to the bathroom, but I have never, ever, ever once run to the bathroom during a show. Thank the Lord, I was born with something of an iron bladder knocking again on wood. That strength of mine is extremely important here at Fox. Because the bathroom is a long, long way from our studio on the second floor. So, this would require a sprint down a long hall and a sprint all the way back down that long hall to make it back to live TV in three and a half or four minutes that we get during a break. Needless to say, while you would actually be in the bathroom, you would have to be pretty quick on the draw to make it back in three and a half or four minutes. (sighs) But I will tell you this, Ernestine does marvel that on some Friday nights, I am so exhausted from getting up every morning at 2 a.m., weekday mornings, I'm so worn out that I can go to sleep for 12 straight hours, It's usually 10, but I've done 12 straight in the Saturday morning without once having to get up to use the bathroom. Thank you, God. But obviously, the last thing I do before every show that I've ever done, every single morning, is to hit the head. And because I'm constantly hydrating during the show, because I do sweat, because Shannon makes me sweat. The first thing, the very first thing I do when the show is over, to use Ernestine's word, I pee. I'm talking about long pee. Another question from Daniel from Salt Lake City. What other podcasts do you listen to besides your own? interesting, Daniel. Please don't take this the wrong way. Please don't take this as being holier than thou or in any way condescending or above it all. But Daniel, I do not follow anyone on Twitter or on any other social media platform, and I do not listen to any other podcast. Why not? Because I do not want anyone else thinking for me, influencing my opinions, reshaping my point of view. I never ever, not since my first year on Twitter, but these days, I I never ever read any of my Twitter ats or mentions, responses, because I don't want to let Twitter infiltrate my psyche, make me second guess myself. or or redefine my original instincts. Trust your instincts. Trust that little voice in the back of your head. I don't wanna be a Twitter prisoner. Trust me, I've watched so many, too many media careers, wrecked by media stars, reading and taking to heart What they're saying about said star on Twitter, it's usually what four or five people, people you don't know, you have no idea where they live or who they are, what they're saying about you, you let them define you. My opinions, for better or worse, are strictly, completely, authentically my opinions unfiltered, unadulterated, untouched by external influences. I sit up night after night watching game after game, Saturday after Sunday, game after game, thinking in the back of my skull, what is really going on here? I want my opinions to remain completely me, completely pure. Really, the the only human I ever talk sports with is my brother, Lil Wayne, because trust me, he is a sports savant. He stimulates my deepest sports thoughts, which leads to today's final story. On Christmas Day, I posted on Instagram a picture of my skinned-up knee with just a little bit of explanation about what happened to said knee. If you will allow, I now will provide full detail about what could have, maybe should have been far worse than it actually turned out to be, which was still pretty bad. As I've mentioned before, I do do one hour of cardio exercise every single day. That's running on the treadmill, occasionally running outside, and sometimes riding an upright stationary bike inside. Never miss one hour every single day. Weekends are actually the opposite of off days for me Because Saturday, I go pretty hard on the treadmill, and Sunday is my all-out run day on the treadmill. Sometimes outside, but mostly on the treadmill. I try to break my record every Sunday for how far I can go in one hour on the treadmill, which is usually a little over six treadmill miles. Outside, it's more. It's eight outside. I don't really understand how the treadmill measures, but it's six on my treadmill, and I am flying. So, of course, this past Sunday fell on Christmas Day, which meant that that Sunday was business as usual on the treadmill. So after Ernestine and Hazel, our little Maltese and I, had our quote-unquote Christmas, it was abbreviated, We exchanged our gifts and our cards. I did continue watching Packers at Dolphins while I stretched in preparation for my hardest run of the week on the treadmill. And yes, by the way, the game did stay on with no sound through our gift and card opening. Ernstein said, does it have to stay on? I said, I warned you. There's only one TV in our living room, or I would have had on, at the same time, LeBron at Luka, also without the sound. Yet, just for the record, in my career, I cannot remember a more messed up Christmas Eve and Christmas Day than these two because of the heavy NFL slate on both days, including the biggest game cowboy-wise, of my year, obviously on Saturday. And because Christmas Eve fell on Saturday and Christmas Day on Sunday, I I got no day off for Christmas. I pretty much got scrooged. So I finally got on the treadmill, maybe mid-third quarter of Aaron Rodgers at Tua. And as quickly as my body and psyche could take it, I kept pushing the button up, 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 up towards seven miles per hour, which is usually about my top speed. There'll be sometimes at the end of the run, maybe the last five minutes, I'll try to push it up to 7.2 or three if I'm feeling really good. But for me, 7.0 is flying. I try to reach that speed maybe 15 minutes into the one-hour run, and I try to hold on for dear life, which, trust me, is no fun until it's over. Then it's really fun. Until then, it can be torture, as you probably know. I usually fare better psychologically when I have a game to watch as opposed to just some random movie that I might flip around on and might or might not hold my attention, but I can get lost in a game, especially games of magnitude like last Saturdays and Sundays. So Sunday, as I got faster and faster, I was flipping back and forth between Packers and Lakers, just one TV there in my little TV room, TV nook, exercise nook, And I was increasingly in awe of how hot the Mavericks got in their 51-point third quarter and how not Tua got in his third quarter as he went haywire and threw three second-half interceptions. Now it sounds like he was concussed. But faster and faster I ran, and more and more I forgot where I was and what I was doing. Quick aside. Ernestine and I always exchange gifts, excuse me, exchange gifts with little Wayne. Wayne is a big giver, and so are we. The only human I know with a bigger giving heart than little Wayne's is Ernestine's. Good Lord. She has a heart bigger than Kevin Costner's ranch called the Yellowstone on Yellowstone, said to be the biggest ranch in the United States. That's Ernestine's heart. So I was planning to call or text Wayne and thank him for what he sent us later in the day on Christmas Day. But when the deed was done in Miami, I knew that by far the best Christmas gift that Wayne could ever get was that Packers victory that kept obviously Green Bay's hopes alive in the wildcard race. So I decided on the fly to try texting Wayne congrats while I was running from the phone that was resting on my treadmill console. Really bad idea. Understand I have often successfully texted while running on that same treadmill much more slowly on weekday mornings between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. When I jog, I don't run. Much slower pace, which makes texting much safer. But you know me, I have to push everything to the limit. So I thought, surely I can pull this off. I opened my phone, I tried to steady myself, and I tried to type with just my forefinger And it happened. My left toe somehow caught on the belt as it came forward. And I lost my balance. And I experienced a split second of sheer horror and terror, of utter shell shock. As the reality set in, in in sort of weird slow motion, that in the next 10th of a second, I was going to fall. I was going to hit the belt to the treadmill, and I was going to be bounced backward off the treadmill and onto the floor, which is carpeted, so I'd have a shot. But just understand, I've been running on treadmills around the world for 40 years, Not once have I ever fallen, not one single time. Friends have told me the last couple of days, boy, they're really dangerous. I I never thought about any danger of falling on a treadmill, but now I was falling. Yet in the next 10th of a second, slow motion, it hit me that my daughter, quote unquote, Hazel, my six-year-old 10-pound Maltese, love of my life, was, as always, sleeping in her little pink bed at the very end of the treadmill. Every time I set foot on the treadmill, she follows me right to it. She gets in her bed and goes to sleep. I'm assuming this sort of rhythmic running, that sort of metronome feel puts her right to sleep. She seems to love it but I suddenly flashed on flying straight backward. What do I weigh? 165 pounds right onto sleeping Hazel. Would I crush her? Would I break some of her bones? Would I damage her head? Would I hurt her badly? And somehow, I'm still not sure how this happened because it happened so fast but so slowly. I grabbed onto the treadmill handles beneath the console and I hung on for dear life, her life. The the treadmill ripped my feet right out from under me and my right knee went all the way down onto that hard rubber belt which I could feel scrape and burn the knee. I felt both my feet flying backwards. I could feel my left knee, the opposite knee, wrenching underneath me, but it did not go down and get burned. And yet I hung on with all my might, until, I don't know how this happened, but I somehow pulled my body weight back up, because it helps that I do lift, never miss a lift. I pulled my feet back up against the roaring belt until I got little toe holds on each of the metal sides that run along the belt. Finally, I regained my balance, but not my wits. I was in shock. I was also afraid to look at my knee, which was feeling like it had been set on fire. But Hazel, she had bolted her bed, and as I looked over my shoulder, she was now standing maybe 20 feet away, looking at me as if to say, what in the name of Lassie just happened to you? I don't know, maybe I, wouldn't have crushed her if I'd fallen on her. Maybe she was even quicker than I thought. Maybe she would have bolted before I hit, but I just stood there for maybe five minutes listening to the belt whir underneath me. Then I heaved a sigh. I finished my text to Wayne. I sent it. I turned off the treadmill. I got a drink I, of water. <laughs> I, I tried to figure out how hurt I was, but then you know me, I got right back on the treadmill. I hit start again. I had 16 minutes left up to the hour that I always run. Hazel, bless her soul, crawled right back into her bed and went right back to sleep. I did not get back up to 7.0. I did get to 6.2. I hung in. I finished my few minutes that I had left, which seemed like another hour. Sunday night, I realized that my problem is really my left knee that hurts the most. I did wrench it pretty badly. It got very sore and remains very sore. So is my right hip, weirdly. It's almost like I was in some sort of like car crash. I've been icing my knee every night. I bombard it with Voltaren gel, anti-inflamm. I'm popping Motrin haven't run this week, stayed on the upright exercise bike, no running yet. I don't know. I think, at least I hope, that my knee's not going to need yet another surgery. I hope I'll be okay, but I did learn my lesson. Never again will I try to text at full speed on the treadmill, but what I can't get out of my head as I turn what happened over and over in my head to this moment is Hazel. It's just hard to explain to you. It's hard to publicly admit this, acknowledge this, just how much she has come to mean to me. She was supposed to be Ernestine's dog. And now that little girl has changed my life. That's it for episode 46. Happy New Year. Hope you all have a Jordan-esque 23. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his All-Pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.